Hello and welcome again, everyone. Let me introduce to our first speakers for today are Mr. Leo and Mr. Ms. Sana from MBRDV. Senior project leader and architect Leo Stuckart coordinates MBRDV Next, an in house RD group he co founded in 2017 that focuses on experimental technologies, computational workflows, and new forms of narrative. Orchestrating collaborations with MBRDV's design studios and developing data-driven parametric design workflows, he helps the team to implement new design methodologies in their work to enhance design capabilities, reducing cost, enhancing sustainability, as well as the future impact of MBRDV's work. Architecture is an incredibly manifold field it allows me to move from the highly specific to larger abstract questions on the relation of space to its inhabitants, sociology, music, economy, ecology, says Leo Stucker. <laughs> Associate Director, Head of MBRDV Next, and architect Sana Wendelberg leads multiple teams with MBRDV realizing projects of various scales phases, and across several continents. Sana played an integral role in high-profile MBRDV projects, including Museum Bowman's One Beninin Depot, the refurbishment of the Leon Pardu Shopping Center, and a visionary project for revitalizing New Delhi sanitization and infrastructure, Barapula Springs. Sana is a versatile architect with demonstrated design achievements. Our projects are more than designs. They are solutions to specific challenges, being able to strive for continuous improvement through exploration is what I love about what we do at MBRD, says Sana Vandabur. Today, they will be talking about through a series of case studies by MVRDV and their in-house computational design unit, MVRDV Next, Leo Stuckard and Sana Vandeberg will explore the relations between emerging technologies and architectural design within a global practice. In response to this year's IIDA theme, Reinventing Design Through Technology, the talk will reflect on these relations through three distinct lenses. What is design? What is technology? And what is re-innovation? Let's hear it from Mr. Leo and Ms. Sena. Thank you for the kind introduction. Thank um, you so much. Yeah, and great, great to be here. We're still um, curious to also see it in the metaverse. It's our first uh, experience in the metaverse. <laughs> so thank you very much for the invitation. Um, Sana, I think. Let's start. Yep. Let's... We'll start by sharing our screen. Um, is that working? Can you see us? Yeah, we're assuming that uh, you can see our screen with yes, uh, black can. slides. Okay, perfect. Then uh, we'll kick it off. So thank you so much for the introduction. We're absolutely happy to be here. And indeed, like Leo said, uh, our first appearance in the metaverse. Super exciting. And uh, yeah, happy to talk to you today. Uh, yeah, as uh, you said before, uh, my colleague here, Leo, and uh, myself are uh, the, the people that actually founded MVRDV Next. And we are a, an in-house group that works around the clock on uh, innovation and speculating on what the future has uh, for us to deal with as architects and as designers. And we were very much uh, triggered by the, the title of the event that you have today, Design Technology and Reinnovation. And uh, Leo and I had a brainstorm together, like, what shall we do for this lecture? And immediately, actually, we figured that these three things, design technology and innovation or reinnovation, are uh, things that specifically uh, trigger us as MVRDV Next. Uh, individually and also how they come together. So that is something that uh, we will be talking about in the coming half hour. So uh, yeah, you've seen us and uh, maybe you see us here in our wonderful orange room. 
in uh, Rotterdam uh, talking to you and we are actually uh, representing a DMVRDV office, which is a global firm. We have over 330 employees. We have offices in Rotterdam, in uh, Berlin, in Paris, in Shanghai and in New York. And uh, we are here in the, the mothership of MPRDV where all the design work happens. And um, if we start today by talking about uh, reinventing design through technology, then the first chapter of our lecture with you is going to be design. And we will disassemble the theme of the event in three chapters. And I will be taking the first chapter. And that is indeed, what is design? Uh, we recently uh, became fans of Midjourney. And uh, every now and then what you see, for example, with the development as Midjourney is that technology is actually a tool for the imagination. And when you uh, search for what is design, then this is what Midjourney generates for you. And if we look at these images, then artificial intelligence tells us that design is something that has to do with shapes and with colors and uh, yeah, different forms and uh, design as such. It looks like um, something without context. And this is specifically what we at MVRDV uh, are fascinated by is specifically our designs are not just shapes or forms, but our designs are solutions to specific challenges. And this is also the the let's say the mission vision motto statement of MVRDV is that we create social innovative realistic green and remarkable architecture for a changing world this is what we do and this is uh, our mission at MVRDV and we figured that it would be very interesting for this event specifically to since we're disassembling things to also disassemble our own uh, mission statement so if we create social, innovative, realistic, green and remarkable architecture, uh, what are we actually saying with that? And how can we illustrate that through design and technology? Let's uh, look at social first. So uh, this is one of our first projects. This is the Bozoko in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, one of the first uh, built projects by MVRDV. And uh, for me personally, one of the first projects that I fell in love with when I was an architecture student in the 90s. This is uh, a project where we were given uh, a, a site and a brief. And the, the brief was to fit 100 housing units for the elderly into a very compact plot. And actually, uh, the amount of square meters that we were asked to realize and the amount of units could not fit within this plot. And what we did at that point uh, is to question the regulations. And uh, at that point, it was not possible in Amsterdam, it was possible in Amsterdam to actually ex exceed outside of the plot boundary. So what we did here is by adding uh, extra units and by cantilevering, moving outside of the plot boundary, so by floating over the original plot boundary, we were able to realize many more units uh, and give everyone in the block a uh, happy and social place to live in. And even the units that you see here, it's housing for the elderly, but still, if you look at the elderly on their balcony, it is pretty rock and roll for housing for the elderly. And this is one of the things that we did is through one intervention, uh, which is extending outside of the plot, we made units for everyone more spacious and more pleasant. Then if we look at the next, uh, the next topic, so we create social architecture, we also create innovative architecture. And we just spoke about uh, pleasant spaces and space for people. This is uh, in, in Europe, the dream where you have your own, ho your own house and your own uh, plot. And uh, this is of course not a sustainable way to densify. So indeed, if we look at land use, living together in coexistence, in collective individuality and individual collectivity, what would that mean? Can we all live together with all of our individual hopes, dreams, wishes, and needs in a way that accommodates all of us? And this is a project called the WeGo. 
uh, done by the Y Factory, which is uh, the, a public-private participation between TU Delft and, and VRDV. And this is an example of what it could look like if we all work and live together in different units with all of our wishes and dreams and hopes combined in one slab. We also create realistic architecture. And uh, with that, I'm going to show you the valley in Amsterdam. This is uh, a project that uh, exists on the border of a central business district and a housing area. And how can we best combine uh, the characteristics of both those two uh, neighbors, phenomena, contexts, as you wish. And what you see here is a combination of those two, a project that is on one hand uh, uh, absorbing and embracing uh, the district of uh, the South Oz in Amsterdam, the CBD, and on the other hand, it's extremely human, uh, porous, accessible, with lots of green and terraces. And what we did here, this project, this is a dream, if you see it uh, on the previous slide, but actually, we actually helped make that dream come true through uh, new technologies. And Leo will go into a deep dive later in this presentation about how this project actually came to exist and the engineering and the technology behind realizing this dream of making something that is both human and green and accessible. And you see the project under construction and the deep dive, deep dive will explain how we actually created the project itself. And uh, indeed also these, uh, the tiles, the specific patterns here is something we'll explore later. So about realizing dreams and again, technology as a tool for realizing the imagination. Then uh, we have two more projects to go to, which one is uh, green. We also create green projects. And this is uh, something that is uh, e nice to speculate on because green is uh, very likable. Everybody likes green. But green is a very broad term, and green uh, does not necessarily mean green. Uh, it can also mean sustainable. It can also mean that a project is uh, doing something with its context in a sustainable way. And this project that I'm going to show you now is a project in Bordeaux. It's a master plan uh, that is actually realized. So if you are in the area, you can visit the realized plan. And uh, Bordeaux is a project that was based on uh, daylight and sunlight. And what we see here is uh, the plot that we had where we were given uh, a plot in, uh, in Bordeaux. And what we did is we applied the sun and daylight regulations. And if I flip back and forward, what you see is that we sliced volumes according to regulations. We divided the plots for maximum differentiation. And these streets, if you see them now, uh, these shapes are not something you would normally imagine yourself, but this is a project that has been sculpted by the sun or designed by light as you could see. And the last one is remarkable architecture. And remarkable architecture is, for example, the Expo 2000 pavilion in Hanover that we built as an ode to the Dutch landscapes, a collection of everything the Netherlands has to offer. But in, a, in addition to that, also, we are a compact country. So uh, celebration of triple, quadruple land use by stacking landscapes on top of each other. And for example, here, the depot uh, Boymans van Berningen in the Netherlands, also a dream of uh, hosting, but also exposing uh, a, a collection of museum art pieces to the public, which is what you see here. And uh, this is recently opened, uh, this building, and it is uh, absolutely a mirage. If you see this, then you think, is this real or not? And it is actually real and it exists. And it's wonderful to see. And why do we do all of this? Because we are working for a changing world and there are limits to growth. And we've all read the IPCC reports and the Club of Rome. And we know that we are actually consuming more resources than we have, and we are just growing. And therefore we also take our responsibility as architects to uh, through our work address the urgencies we are facing. Great. So what's the role of technology in all of this? Um, I'm going to show a quick overview of the history of the meaning of technology within MBRDV's uh, pr practice already starting from the early 90s until today and then go in depth into what it means uh, actually right now in the changing world of 2022. Uh, quick disclaimer, I will have to pick up pace a bit here to make it on time, so please bear with me. Um, if you look at the, the origins of MBRDV, then um, there's a strong drive, I guess, for speculation and, and visionary thinking in the early 2000s. 
which uh, partially maybe had to do also with um, economical stagnation, a lack of real world projects, and that gives room to think and dream and uh, be bold. Um, and what is particular about MDRDV, and I think both of us were not there at the, at the time, but what inspires us also to work here today was that all of these projects were really linked to um, the making of tools, the making of technology, digital technology. And we see in these projects a link where, in a way, a vision, a vision in this case for a region in Germany, um, could not, can only be articulated through the making of a software, through the making of technology. So it's not that there's a sketch or there's an idea and then other people sit on it and develop a tool or a technology to make it, but the making of the technology is part of the making of the project. And we see that this was done on different scales. So in the previous one was on the level of, of a region, so large territorial scale. The next one here, Space Fighter, a project from the early 2000s, was, a, was an interactive online multiplayer game where different users would fight, as the name indicates, um, and maximize the individual space. So exploring mechanisms of negotiation, gamification of design and so on already back then. Um, a bit later, within the extensive research on the vertical village, which in a nutshell was about looking particularly in an Eastern uh, Asian context on densification of informal um, typologies, uh, the central element of the project was this thing that's called the Village Maker. It's a software that was developed, as you can see, in Grasshopper which would allow interactively um, to, to choose from a catalog of individual informal um, yeah, single family apartment units and position them in this dense envelope and similar to the WeGo project that Sunny showed in the beginning, um, in real time evaluate your impact in terms of cost structure, the views that you take from your neighbors, the sunlight that you gain, um, so costs and benefits, and uh, again, an interest in negotiation and real time assessment of impact um, of design decisions in a complex uh, um, environment. And then uh, lastly, I think one step further, this is probably today quite familiar in anything from online shopping to of clothing or fashion to real estate, uh, the housemaker, which allow, would allow basically anyone, not only architects or experts, to design their own houses. So also here an idea, I think, how technology can help to make architecture accessible, understandable, and just include more people, so in, uh, in a way, participation. So all of these tools from the early 2000s inspire us, but we're not part of them. And of course, as we know, the world is changing. Um, we have to reinvent, re-innovate. So a couple of years ago, five years ago, Sanne and me started MBRDV Next, which is an acronym for New Experimental Technologies. So the interest was precise to, precisely to have a unit within MBRDV that um, is part of the workflows and of the making of projects, but also can take a bit of an observant or analytical position on it and uh, yeah, understand the workflows, see where things can be improved. But then also, that's the new part, then also the experimental part, break out of that, see what is happening in the world, adopt technologies that are made outside, uh, bring them in here and change and reinvent and challenge the way that we make projects. So if this is what MBIDV does programmatically, then we like to think of ourselves in a way as the back end, as the yeah, developing the processes that feed into these kind of projects that enable them, that um, nudge them, that optimize them, that uh, yeah, just uh, maybe in the, in the end at some point might even be invisible in complex geometries, but that actually make them feasible, remarkable, responsible, and so on. So um, if you want to look at our role of MBRDV Next and maybe also of how we apply technology at MBRDV, we can distinguish it in two directions. On the one hand, we can look at um, applied to versus speculative design. So I think particularly the role of technology has this really interesting gap uh, or bridge between things that are useful right now that uh, can immediately prove their value in a very short term. But then at the same time, also, of course, you can think further ahead and that allows you to speculate uh, on a, maybe the way we'll design in 10 years or five years, 15 years maybe. But of course, that's a, if you think of how fast things are changing right now, then it gets challenging. So basically, in the, and then in the other direction, of course, we work um, on, the, on the left, very integrated with the workflow of MBRDV, directly with design teams all throughout the office. And at the same time, on the right, uh, we work more 
um, independent, we work with academia, um, and we initiate our own research projects. We'll show examples for both of those uh, later. So quick overview of what we do. We do design space exploration. Um, this is an example of a project in France where we had a preset uh, of floor plans that was defined. And the interest was like, how can we stack them? How can we combine them to create a building that in three dimensions creates uh, new qualities? And how can we quantify those qualities? So we, in this case, we actually brute forced, uh, I think a combination of seven floor plans over nine levels, which ended up with a catalog of, uh, I think in the end it was 73,000 uh, possible configurations. And we built this explorer then, this, uh, that would allow you to, um, on the, as you can see in the graph on the left, prioritize amongst different um, scores or parameters, such as views, structural impact, amount of terraces, daylight and the qualities and so on. And you would draw a graph uh, in which element, which of these factors you would prioritize in a solution. And then the algorithm would give you a top 20 out of these 73,000 uh, solutions that would match the closest to profile that you would define. Both interested in the relational data scape. So how can we use forms of big data, um, true technology, read that and use it as a direct design driver. In the case of the Floriade that opened, um, couple of months ago here in Almere in the Netherlands. We were working from the beginning of the project. It was a 10-year planning and design process. Uh, from the beginning of the project, we worked with several landscape designers and, uh, and architects. And as uh, this spreadsheet or this data set of species of plants for the Floriade um, was developed, maybe I should add that it's a garden show that happens every 10 years in the Netherlands, uh, we would develop a, a backend or a technology that would um, then update the master plan and the positions of plants and evaluate synergies between plants and all that kind of stuff uh, in real time as different collaborators would add information here. Similarly, we also built our own datascapes. This is a master plan that we uh, uh, for a competition that we developed in, uh, in Shenzhen in China for Tencent. And in the project, um, the geometries that look rather complex were mainly modeled by hand in Rhino. But then, as they are so complex, it's hard to evaluate them and to, comp and to compare them and choose directions. So we build a datascape essentially of design options. And that's what you can see on the right, where you can see complex uh, comparison graphs for feasibilities of these different options. And we can also then evaluate, of course, each of the buildings themselves. So on the left, a catalog um, with attributes for footprint versus um, floor area, facade rates, <coughs> and so on. And then on the right, we can scatter plot them and see which of these buildings are actually efficient and which ones uh, need to be revisited or redesigned. Um, then, of course, another part um, is just then designed to production. So how can we optimize rationalized designs, complex geometries? What you can see is uh, here is a project where we built um, an engine that essentially was incorporating both internal um, requirements for square meters, accessibility of course and so on, as well as of course the external factors such as the site boundaries uh, and, and uh, offsets of neighboring buildings. And you would have a building that you, you would have a design that you can nudge and pull and interact with, but it would fight back. And basically what fights back then is regulations and all these parameters that are embedded in the technology that we made specifically for this project. Um, this is maybe just interesting to show that also when that as technologies get complex and uh, that also the literacy and the way in which we communicate these technologies uh, is important. So one way that we do this is through meta modeling. So in a way to drawing diagrams of algorithms so of drawing diagrams of workflows and processes in order to communicate them and also for ourselves keep track of, uh, of course, of the decisions that are taken by in the programs or in the software. Then, um, uh, I guess an obvious one is uh, to develop new methods to work with the environment. Sana already showed the Bordeaux project where this was actually realized. Um, we also developed our own um, computational solution, which you can visual see visualized here. I will go in detail into this, therefore I'll skip it now. I will also, um, I think, skip over this. And maybe a last one, thinking about metaverse and these kind of things is also that we can see technology as a way to think just about scenarios. So no, no ideas of um, maybe of optimization and rationalization, but just of collecting ideas in a digital space and visualizing them easily. We did this in Bangkok in a projection of um, for futures and scenarios in Bangkok and essentially generated this collection of ideas and visions 
and just superimpose all of them within a large model of the city. And it allows to talk about things specifically for yeah, locations and intersection crossing, but then also this kind of zooming out and just these multiple perspectives and on the complexity of different actions, interactions and interventions. So I think that's something that could link to the metaverse. The next one is like this dream, I think, of real-time design. And what you can see here is a lecture of one of our uh, associate directors who at the facade fair talks about, um, I guess, complexities and compositions of different uh, facades and materials. And then it, the event evolved into this participatory process of discussing together with the audience and in a way designing this project. So in the back end, one of our colleagues was um, ad adjusting um, the code in real time, changing materials, facade compositions. And it was essentially a software built for real time design. We call it live scripting. Um, and then, of course, also prototyping, physical prototyping, so bringing digital elements into uh, physical actuation. What you can see was that the same facade fair prototype for um, a, a kind of portal to interact with each other. So it's a wall that, uh, where you have proximity sensors and cameras on both sides. And as people would approach each other, the portal would open and you can see each other through it, so through two screens and the webcam feeds. Um, but if there's no one on the other side, it would basically just visually give you this illusion of a larger space by um, bulging virtually. Um, and then I guess another interest that uh, with any form of life or interactive design is then the making of interfaces. So how as a user, how, how do you visually communicate through software the costs, benefits, in, and the impact that design decisions take. And I think this is something where technology has a really interesting role because it can help to make these kind of processes, complex processes of urban design uh, in particular, understandable um, and maybe more approachable to, to a general and larger audience. So quick first deep dive into the valley. How did we turn this from a bold uh, de uh, design and beautiful renderings into a realistic as one of our statements uh, project. Um, I guess there are two parts to it where technology played a decisive role. The first one is in the optimization of the massing. So what you can see here, this was in collaboration with Arup, um, Arup's computational design unit. And it was essentially an algorithm that would explore different angles and, um, and combinations of massing and evaluate them both according to standardized uh, modules for facade length, as well as to the, um, to the impact of shading in the summer and heat gain or solar exposure in the winter. So it's quite interesting because in, in the end, what this algorithm exploits then is the difference of the sun, solar arc between the winter where you want a lot of sun to heat the building and the summer where you want as little as possible. And in the second, again here, you use technology algorithms for generative design, you're ex immediately confronted with this uh, infinite array of design possibilities. Uh, here we see again that then scoring is a key element to do. In green, options that perform better, um, and in red, obviously, options that perform less good. The second part here, and I think that is, a, that is something that might look unspectacular at first, but actually when you visit the building, is for me, probably the most essential part of it was the facade of it. And this uh, this is one of our first long-lasting projects that we did develop with MBRDV Next, all the way from the concept and the design of the facade to um, delivering construction documents. And we developed a workflow here from the Revit model. So at, the, at that time, the project was already in Revit um, to a more flexible design in Rhino and Grasshopper, and then uh, communicating or sending that data back into the format of the facade engineers and um, cost calculators. And again, here, the question of intuition was, was or intuition of designer was very interesting for us. And as you can see, the um, you can, we developed an engine that would propose design um, facade pattern alignments. So there are several rules embedded here from the, the modularity of, of facade of tile length to specific rules for edge conditions and so on. And then as a designer, once the algorithm proposes a solution, you can just select curves or elements within this, and it would keep on iterating different combinations. As soon as, you dis uh, as soon as you're satisfied with the composition, you just deselect it, and it will store that result. Then, of course, there's the other part to this, from intuitive design to just monitoring of impact. 
So here we can uh, keep an overview and keep track of the distribution of tiles, to, uh, quantities of different length and height. And that helps, of course, to keep costs uh, under control, communicate with clients, and just show, I guess, a general um, awareness or understanding and control of the process. Um, again, questions of visualization of these processes fascinate us. So in, in the end, the project only had four different tiles plus exceptions, A, B, C, D, plus uh, two exception tiles. And we, we developed this methodology to just actually project those codes on the, on the 3D model. And then again, you see um, the project as a form of a datascape. So the build project uh, we already showed. And I think at MBIDB, we can be proud of a project with pristine uh, detailing. This one is, I think, achieved that. And I really think that the technology here, the digital process of how this was developed is key to the success of the building. And that brings us to the third and last part to reflect on maybe what is the role then of innovation and re-innovation. So if the world is changing and has been changing before, first of all, I guess we have been always innovative and that is not something new. We also think that it's interesting that out of the three questions that we asked uh, from mid-journey, this is one where there's a strong certainty, certainty of putting people into the center of it. So design, abstract gradients and shades, uh, technology, something with screens. Uh, mostly, I guess, at this point, technology can be understood then as digital technology, but innovation needs people. And I think we totally agree with that. We don't rarely have these moments of absolute illumination <laughs> as uh, visualized here, but um, I guess for us, innovation began with three very innovative young architects in the 90s. Um, so we will use this moment just to introduce our practice as well. Vinny Maas, Jakob van Reis, and uh, Nathalie de Vries. And at this point, we have 300 innovative people <laughs> worldwide. Uh, you see some here. And I think that's really the key also to making these kind of projects and to bringing in different ideas and, um, yeah, I guess, coincidence and chance, which is... I guess the key also of innovation, random encounters, thoughts, how people come together and how to facilitate these communications. You can see that we work now, I think we have done around 1300 projects worldwide, um, six continents. And um, we never really showed this slide before in presentations, but we think it's very interesting just to maybe take a step back and see how MBIDB as a corporate structure uh, enables and facilitates innovation. And essentially, the way that we operate here is we have eight design studios um, that are loosely based on geographical parts of the world, therefore have an understanding of context, legal, cost, cultural situations, and so on. But in the growing of SMBIDB group, we also realized that that leads, leads to some form of isolation. So studios develop habits, customs, and repeat them. And therefore, MBIDB um, created specialisms. And as you can see in, the, in this um, diagram, specialisms cooperate with all, um, collaborate with all of these different studios. We also collaborate with uh, our four satellite offices in uh, Shanghai, Paris, Berlin, and New York. And therefore, I guess the role of specialisms is not only a role of knowledge and technology and development, but also one of communication. And um, we like to think that this, this, on the one hand, informs our in-house research and development agendas. So we pick up on challenges and opportunities and ideas and innovations um, that happen in design projects, in studios. We, I guess, sense that, we talk with them, we help in, in developing these things, and we then also accelerate them into our standalone independent research and development projects. Um, we publish these things, so of course that's that's a key as well to communication, not only internally but also externally. And we also collaborate with um, universities worldwide. This is the think tank, the Y Factory that Sana mentioned in the beginning. They also publish a lot on visionary cities. Um, we will not go into detail into that right now. I see I have one minute to explain a, a full project now, so let's try to keep the pace. Wanted to show one project of um, an, an innovative project, in our opinion. So that's uh, this is a standalone project that was developed as a research by us by MBRDB Next, um, called Solarscape. And um, as you can see, this is um, the format that we developed. So we make research and we publish this research internally uh, to the office in the form of research reports. Uh, Solarscape is one of those, 
And so let's begin, I guess, with the observation that at least in Europe and the Netherlands in particular, public building policies are changing. And they're changing from, I guess, something that was easy to understand from restrictions. For instance, take a building envelope, uh, take a new plot, a new development. The maximum building height will be defined by landmarks. Don't exceed the landmarks of the city. Easy to measure. Draw an elevation. You measure the height of your building. Done. Nowadays, the regulations here are changing. And I'll show an example of that in a moment to what we call at the moment performative constraints. So that means you can build higher than the landmarks, but but you can't impact your environment um, in a negative way, for instance, in the, in the, uh, through creating shadows, to creating shading um, of, on, on your surroundings, on public spots that are defined here as sunspots. Um, and that becomes a lot harder to measure then. So how do you, and how do you, how do you know if a building um, impacts or how do you know what kind of buildings are possible without impacting your surroundings? And we actually found out about this because clients asked us and clients came to us for feasibility studies and, and said there's this site I don't know how much I can build here is this interesting what can we do because there are these rules about sunspots but we don't know what that actually means like can I build 200 meters can I build 100 meters how can we grasp these complex um, geometries out of that um, so all of these five projects um, this is a selection of projects that happened before our research in design studios in the office that we collaborated with and by developing technological solutions towards these, um, towards in, within these projects, we uh, invented, <laughs> if I may use the term, a process in the end of voxelization. I guess the model in the on the bottom center shows it the most clearly, um, where we rasterize the building envelope into small discrete elements, voxels, and then evaluate the impact for each one of these voxels on the surrounding. And then it basically just becomes an exercise of removing the boxes that don't perform or that impact your surrounding in a negative way. And um, this is something that's very exciting um, to us because uh, first of all, we love pixels and voxels <laughs> as a design element, but also in this case, it's very transferable. So we um, in SolarScape, we explore the potential of this method to daylight, uh, to sunlight, but um, you could imagine attaching any other attributes to this, to this, and that essentially becomes a three-dimensional map of the city where you don't um, index streets and buildings, but just space. And each element, each little element of space has attributes. It might sound a bit abstract, but um, we'll go through it right now and how that worked in the project of SolarScape. Um, this is what you can see here is the high-rise vision of the city of Rotterdam. So this is a public urban planning document. Um, which defines high-rise zones. So it define, defines areas in the city where you can build as high as you want. So Rotterdam is in urgent need of housing. There's a, um, a form of a housing crisis or shortage forming. In response to that, we need to densify. These are, there are four areas in the city that were demarked. This is the one in the center of the city in where we are also sitting right now. And within this zone, the municipality defines sunspot. Sunspots and these are public spaces with some um, particular importance, central elements, either for mobility or as recreational uh, locations, and those are protected in a way. So whatever you build, you can build high, but you cannot impact the daylight on these public spaces. So you cannot add shadow to them. And then how to build buildings that don't cast shadow? What we do is we take each of the plots within the area that can be developed and we maximize that envelope. I think in the in this study, we went up to 200 meters, we rasterize them, and then we evaluate each of the voxels uh, on whether it casts shadow on, uh, on the sunspot or not. What you do, what you get at the end uh, of this exercise is a model, a subtracted model of these voxel envelopes. And what we can see now here is the development potential of the city. So. This is the amount of square meters that could be added. These are not buildings, these are envelopes in which you can design buildings, but uh, it shows the space of possibility for the densification without impacting surroundings. And we spoke about this with developers as well as with the municipality. I think both sides very excited about it because it allows to trans translate um, a, docu a legal document that is articulated in words mainly maybe in diagrams and to spatialize that and to make it tangible and understandable and i think that's also the role that we see of technology here as an as a as a way to communicate and establish feedback loops before the making of policies at municipalities 
and then also to impact or to to give a voice and to show true scenarios how designers and developers with i guess formal or aesthetic interests and commercial interests um uh, can utilize these these um these policies so this is another way to quantify it or to visualize it in just how many square meters can be added so the the volume of the existing building um, proportional to the space that can be added to it um, and I guess this is a form of a collage where we want to show that um, and to explore that also there's a potential true technology here that building policy itself doesn't have to be strict that it is a process of negotiation so in a way all of these cities that you see flickering on the screen right now are possible if you enable the communication between developer architects designers urbanists artists people uh, and the city the municipality of this uh, of rotterdam there's a short video i think we will end it with that as well um which essentially shows the process of the uh, of the making of solarscape you see a fly through of rotterdam so that's of course also essential for digital technologies here is that there's a strong data awareness so this is a model that's publicly accessible and hosted and developed and maintained by the municipality. Um, so then it's easy to build technologies or it helps a lot to build technologies on these kind of digital twins of the city. So data awareness, of course, is a key here. And as we fly, I think in the second step, I'll skip a bit through, we see um, the algorithm. So this is the calculation for each of the envelopes generating the voxels uh, that are possible quantifying for each of them i think in the end we had 120 million calculations for this model to be done um and then i guess what's also interesting is then this is what i spoke about earlier that through these technologies we can um visualize the impact or the possibilities of this and you can immediately communicate and tell and show people what it would look like, what a building policy in the end would mean or imply for a city. And also what you see in this, uh, <clears throat> in this movie is what we talked about in the beginning is indeed technology as a tool for the imagination. And this is also how we utilize technology within the office as architects and as designers is um yeah we design tools to design our projects and this is something that we firmly believe in is that architects designers uh need to be able to handle and uh, design the tools that make design exactly how to as a designer how to remain as a maker of a tool and not the user of the tool i think that's our position where the reinvention of design through technology is a central element of that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Anyone still there? <laughs> Thank you so much, Leo and Sana, for a very interesting presentation. Um, if there are any questions from the audience, uh, we would like to re request you to answer. Uh, sure, with pleasure. I see one one question in the in the chat that I'm logged in on the on the software. Is that yes, for okay. housing? Um, thank you. Uh, could you could you just tell me which which of the projects were was this referring to? I guess maybe about the um, Paris project and you see the stack of floor plans. Which technological software is there for housing? So yeah, but I think I, I understand the question as that it's referring to a specific project. Maybe it's just more about the way, about the softwares we use. That could be also. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I would understand it as uh, probably referring to the EC project. Um, uh, and that was built in Grasshopper, so built on top of uh, Rhino in, uh, in Grasshopper as a custom plugin to be developed for the project. Ah, maybe it's yeah. I mean, there are many housing yeah. projects, so I, I thought I thought that it might refer to this one. This was built in Rhino and Grasshopper. So, uh, is there a uh, this questions from me? Are there different mm -hmm. softwares used in different projects? So um yeah i think that's that there's there are like some main um tools that that we are working with at the moment so from our side that is rhino and grasshopper of course just because it's um very customizable so we can really tailor it to the needs of mbrdb and revit because it became an uh, industry standard at least speaking for myself not a big fan of it but we have to use it and it has its advantages of course um, on an urban scale, we work a lot in GIS, of course, for data management, QGIS we use there. Um, and then on the more experimental side, we are also working, developing applications in Unity. There's more on our side where we're building things that are real time, that are more about interaction. Um, then there's some open source stuff, I guess, that we work with. That's more, on, again, on the experimental side. So just um, machine learning frameworks, Google Collab, cloud computing, and these kind of things. But I would say in a day-to-day -day practice at MBRDB, it's probably Rhino, AutoCAD, and, and Revit, and then custom custom plugins and extensions and scripts on all three of those. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll just wait if there are any more questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, yeah, there's another question I see on wind. So that uh, I guess that's referring to the last project. Thanks for the question. That is true. Um, I guess that you could extend this method to a lot of other environmental parameters. It's true that wind becomes particularly pressing. The thing is that um, from our understanding and what our engineers in the office tell us, wind is much easier to compensate in a way. Um, so basically, as you build high, you get these kind of winds that are falling down on the facade and accelerate, but you can uh, and accelerate wind um, on the ground. But um, to my understanding, you can compensate that quite a lot on an architectural level. So, for instance, by building canopies. But for sunlight or daylight, you cannot do that. Once the massing is there, you will not, you cannot build a building transparent in a way that the sun goes through. So, in a way, um, it's true. It would be very interesting to extend this to wind and to other elements. But um, I guess they can be solved. They could still be solved in the make turning this from an envelope from a solar envelope into um into a building or into architecture yeah and i think also the idea is that we can uh learn to control the things we know for example the sun is fairly predictable in how it moves and by not having that knowledge we can use the data as an infra as a design tool mm -hmm. and one of the things that's apart from wind that we are working with now is carbon because um we all have uh like we also said before, we are in a changing world that is rapidly changing and uh, global warming is a thing. And we also feel that we as designers need to start understanding and designing with a carbon. And for that, we also created a tool called Carbonscape, which uh, actually achieves or aims to achieve that specifically. So how can we make informed design decisions based on how much carbon we emit with every design decision? So uh, adding parameters that we actually know and control is a very much a thing that we embed in our daily practice. Thank you so much for this insightful conversation. Uh, there's one more question coming up. Uh, I'll just wait for that. Mm -hmm. oh, it's the same. Yeah, and I, just that's really... the same question again. I think. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to read it out loud, or sh because, or should I? I also like, see it here. In the... You talked about solar analysis. What about wind velocity? Considering as we develop vertically, the air speed and pressure vary. I think you've just uh, answered that one. 
Yeah, no, no, I, I meant I meant the next one. I think that uh, the I'm question... not seeing the next one right now. Ah, okay, I'll, I'll read it out. It's um, just repeated, yes. Uh, I read it out. Uh, it says technology is a little intimidating for a normal person. So, how do we convince the clients to their usage for building design and construction? I think that that's really a core question and also something that we quite frankly underestimated in the beginning since of course our group was formed by people who are enthusiastic and optimistic towards the use of technology i think that um the way we do this at the moment is two examples so we they, i think one key is to applying technology so the making of new technologies that we develop directly in projects and to doing that in a in a, in a phased way so we in the beginnings, I guess, when we started this, we really thought of, okay, let's build the software, this big tool that does a lot of things, and it immediately gets very complicated, and it gets hard to communicate. And then what you realize is, as, you, as if you break these things down into small chunks, and you first develop a, a little bit, you show what it does, you show how it can make a building better or faster, or how it shows how it can generate different ideas and possibilities. And then you convince people to buy into it. I don't, I don't only mean financially, but also you know, in engagement or in, in just being convinced by it. And then you can develop it further. So I think that's really something that's key to thinking about technology as tooling and digital tooling and design is uh, modularity. Yeah, and also technology, uh, it maybe sounds intimidating, but most, maybe all of the things we enjoy are actually technology and we play with our Xbox or uh, with our TikTok or God knows what, but uh, everything that we enjoy nowadays is related to technology. So also it's maybe a bit of the, the term, maybe we should rebrand, reinvent technology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and indeed uh, it's technology is fun mm -hmm. and it's all around us and it's uh, just worth to, uh, mm -hmm. to have to play with it. But it is a, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, I think no. that it also shows that the way you communicate things. So that's why we also showed several examples here of diagrams and of data visualization that, um, yeah, it can it, there's this risk of building black boxes that people don't understand how they work and why are the results what they are. And so um, that's something that we also learned over time that making technology, building or innovating on technology take is to a large part communication building presentations, visuals, narratives, explanations of, of what you do. I would say I would go as far as uh, I think we realize internally it's almost 50-50 the time of developing and making the software and the time of communicating and discussing it. So that's uh, also, I, I guess, in a way surprising in the, in yep. the ratio of uh, communication versus actually making it. Yeah, that is so true. Like technology can do a lot and uh being able to clearly frame what you want to do or what somebody wants to achieve and how you're going to achieve that to just explain the intent and the result is uh, is more than half the work. So when you're no. talking about the time uh, taken, so does it affect the actual timeline of a project or you prioritize or inform the client that this is going to the time uh, which we are going to spend on research and development for the software? How does mm -hmm. that actually work? Well, uh, a, a good question indeed. Uh, what do we, uh, because now it sounds a bit like uh, uh, when we use technology, a project will take longer, but actually it's the opposite. What you have seen in the valley in the project we have shown, we have drawn uh, 44,000 facade tiles uh, with a script. And if we would draw those by hand, we have calculated how much time that would take and we are 1114% faster than a human being without holidays and coffee breaks. So whereas you might think that- So, so just, just to clarify that, that's basically the development time of the, of the workflow plus the application yes. of the workflow. Yep. I'm, I'm talking about the development time of the workflow. No, no, I, I just wanted to clarify that, that Sanne's calculation because we, we did ever make that evaluation for the valley. And so the example that Sanne just gave is the development time of the entire workflow, yep. the, the programming of the scripts and tools and the application of those scripts uh, compared to an estimate of what it would take the designer to draw these by hand in Revit. 
So that's the power of automation, but it's more than that. We first, we automated things, but then again, we also, uh, in the end, did 27 revisions. And uh, if this was done by draftsmen, we would have to do the same process for every revision again. So uh, developing tools has a pre-investment. So you have to invest more in the beginning time-wise, but then you reach the tipping point in the curve. And after that, it pays itself back 10 times uh, and definitely more through uh, the, 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 not only the power of automation, but also because of automation, you have the space to design, play and explore. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's just a, a pre-investment in the beginning that uh, pays back in uh, quantity and also in quality of your project. Mm -hmm. But of course, R&D, uh, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to add one one aspect to that, which is that uh, of course R and D um, always has has a risk as well. So that there, so I think that's something that we learned quite well in in the way that we work within MBRDV is to distinguish between R and D that we do ourselves as an investment by MBRDV and R and D that we do as an investment by clients. And I think we take a lot less risks in ongoing projects and um, develop more stable solutions, like in the valley for instance, to precisely avoid the what you're also mentioning, um, no, the possible delays because scripts are not ready or something like that. That's, uh, that's something that we can take bigger risks in our own innovation um, efforts than in, in projects. Thank you. We'll go to the next question. Uh, you use software for massing, sun study, and other studies for outside the building, I guess building but how do you think inside the building inside the room yeah um i mean again i think that's um i guess at this point maybe less through technology and more still maybe we're still a bit more driven by manual design there but i think this also that's that's also something that um, we try to address here that the technologies we build are built within the context and the design methodology of MBRDV. And in many cases, that is one that, res that responds to urban um, issues first, where the design process begins with a reaction to context, with an understanding of the role of a building in a city, and then only after that develops, um, develops uh, approaches towards the interior. But actually, the project that we have on the screen right now or I, th I think it's uh, the screen is off, but the project in Paris that we showed earlier was um, initiated or is designed through interiors. It's just that in this, in the tool that in the, in the way that we look at them in the tool, these are abstracted into boxes because for the evaluation of the algorithm and of the technology, the interiors were um, only relevant as windows, I guess, on daylight. Um, and then they're already embedded in the design in the combination of the floor plans. But probably if another office would have a group like MVRDV Next, um, another architecture office would have a group like MVRDV Next where the methodology starts more from the interior, I guess you would see very different tools created there. And that's also what we are really interested in, in this diversity of design tools and design technologies that emphasize the character of architectural offices and practices compared to a globalization of everyone using Revit and creating the same kind of buildings. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, we'll go for the next uh, question. For how long do they have to keep the analysis of the building performance once they have delivered it to the final user? For how long? What was the question? For how long did yeah, they... I didn't get it either. Uh... Not sure I understand the question. Yeah. Could you rephrase or help frame yeah, the question? I'll just try to rephrase it. Maybe they are talking about how long you will have to keep the data of the analysis. I, that's ah. what I can. Ah, that's a, we can talk for hours about our archives. Mm -hmm. uh, Leo specifically is uh, quite an expert at this, but um, yeah. so I will pass the question. <laughs> no, I, th I think there are two parts. Like because I, I'm, I'm just a bit thrown off by the have to, because it's, it's, I, yeah. I guess if we talk yeah. about our own archive, it's more how long do we want to keep the data, yeah. 
So maybe your question is more geared towards a kind of legal requirement. In which case, I think in a project like Solarscape, there's no obligation because it's not yet part of policy. So it interprets and visualizes policy, but it's not a legal, the data that we create is not a legal document in itself. So therefore we're not obliged to share or, um, or keep that in any form yet. I think for buildings, it's also in Europe, not a requirement yet. Um, that depends on, it's on a, done on a project by project case study, who owns the, the buildings, the building models. That's generally, I think, a big conversation in BIM, no? Like the yep. kind of, and how far building or the building information models of a project can be used also for management and be stored later on for renovations and so on. Um, so, I, yeah, I guess it's a case by case. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's as you say, like if you have to keep data, that sounds, that, yeah. that sounds really boring. <laughs> and uh, actually, if you have data, it's fascinating stuff really data mm -hmm. and uh, yeah we've done a project which is a study into our own old data and our own archives and uh, we've made a complete uh, narrative and a story and a research project about learning from our own past and when did we generate what and looking at that at our own archives is uh, incredibly fascinating and we see the birth of new softwares we see when projects were finished you can easily even if you look at the graphs you can through the email communication, amounts of mail sent and drawings made, you can predict the crisis of 2008-9. So learning from ourselves by looking at data and interpreting it and, and structuring it is uh, something that's really, maybe it sounds a bit boring for you, mm. but for us, it's really exciting because uh, if you are able to steer and utilize data, in a way that gives you new insights, then uh, you're actually very, you have a new tool. Yeah. So I guess I there are two. I completely agree to that. Uh, the <laughs> previous data always helps you probably reinvent something which is not done before or continue doing something which has been fruitful in a, in a way. So mm -hmm. totally, it's, it's, it's about smartly utilizing what's there. Mm -hmm. This is actually what you see in all of these analyses, whether we work with the sun, which is already there, or regulations that are already there. It's all about harnessing information mm -hmm. and being able to utilize that to make, uh, to steer and make informed decisions. And we think that uh, being able to uh, steer data and structure it and harness it and understand it is uh, a new future role and responsibility for designers. Mm. Absolutely. Um, we all already have another question. Mm -hmm. Till now, technology has proven to be almost hazardous for our environment. With the rapid advancement and people's reliability on automated systems, we are almost losing touch with our roots and the simplicity that our ancestors used to have. How do you think technology can support practicing sustainability and fight climate change? Can they go hand in hand? I'm sorry yeah. if I've repeated any questions. I think, yeah, you didn't repeat any question. Yeah, it's a very different <laughs> no, question. No, that, that's, a, that's a good one. I mean, I, I would, um, first of all, I would disagree that technology has proven to be hazardous without, uh, for our environment. I mean, I think that's it's, it's such a big field, right, technology. I mean, you could also say technology has allows us to communicate right now across the planet, um, across the planet in real time. And I don't think that's hazardous for us, even though we might be producing a bit of carbon as a consequence. But I think more importantly, um, there's this, there's a quote that comes to my mind, which uh, goes in the direction of like, um, uh, it's impossible to put a genie back into the bottle. So basically, I, I think the scenario that you propose here of going back to our roots and built in simple ways like our ancestors is impossible. Like, it sounds good, but we cannot go back to that. I mean, the moment that the world is as connected as it is, that crisis and urgencies for housing and 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 and, and, and these kind of things exist. And the way, the moment that we are in a situation of global capitalization, um, you can you cannot fight that to the point of just saying, okay, let's all go back and build um, small huts and go local. I think we are working on ways in which technology can help us to be aware, like for instance, in the case of Carbonscape, our own uh, research project of local sourcing of materials and be aware of the impact that things have. But um, 
yeah, now I'm repeating my answers, <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, it's impossible to go back to something. You can only go forward. And um, we are living in a technologized world and we have to build better technologies for that. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's an extremely relevant question. And also, I think the next, uh, uh, the next EDA uh, conference, I uh, propose that we talk about what is technology. <laughs> because techno it, it's such a broad term. And, and, and sometimes we refer to technology as something that is necessary or, or boring or needed. But it, is, uh, indeed it, is, it has many faces, like sustainability. And actually, they go hand in hand. And uh, we also need to empower and harness leverage technology to achieve our sustainability goals. Uh, we are facing uh, the, 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 the one and a half degrees challenge and global warming. And I cannot stress this enough for everyone out there that is either an architect or a designer that the building industry is responsible for 40% of carbon emissions. And uh, we are, we feel compelled to act and behave responsible and start researching uh, exactly that and take our responsibility. What is What do those 40% of carbon emissions that come from us, from the building industry, how can we change that? How can we steer that? How can we learn uh, to uh, behave more responsibly and how can we inspire others? So uh, for anyone that has attended, uh, please look into carbon. <laughs> it's very important that uh, we all start to uh, change our behavior and reduce our emissions through any technology possible. So we are end of our questions uh, and session. Thank you both. It was great having you for the session here and it opened an altogether new perspective for all of us here. Thank you. Thank you for invitation, attendance and uh, all the questions. Interesting to talk to you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. We really enjoyed it. And have a nice day um, so, the event. <laughs> Same to you. Uh, so now there's a break till 2.30 p.m. And post there that there will be another session immediately. Do, do not forget to tune in. Stay safe. And uh, please network with fellow attendees in the network lounge. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.